Effective Playwriting. On February 27, 1986, SDCF held a conversation on effective playwriting with Stephen Porter and Howard Rossen, moderated by Stephen Fife. Hello, I'm director Pam Berlin, and you are listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. We're here to discuss effective playwriting, which I think is uh, an elusive topic, but a good one in terms of Somerset Maugham, certainly, who uh, is the immediate thing that brings us together here, what we have in common. just wanted to read um, a quote from Maugham to start out and, uh, about playwriting, and then uh, we can get right into a discussion and uh, go around with an idea of what makes an effective play and uh, see what we can formulate on that. Okay, Somerset Maugham wrote in uh, one of his introductions uh, to the, uh, one of the volumes of his collected plays, the purpose of prose drama is to afford delight. I do not think it can usefully concern itself with the welfare of humanity or the saving of civilization. In my opinion, what the theater does best is to give pleasure by telling a story, delineating character, and by stirring the emotions or causing laughter. And uh, maybe I should read that again, just biopic fast. just want to use it as a taking off point. Again, he says, the purpose of prose drama is to afford delight. I do not think it can usefully concern itself with the welfare of humanity or the saving of civilization. In my opinion, what the theater does best is to give pleasure by telling a story, delineating character, and by stirring emotions or causing laughter. So, moving on from that, uh, how would you respond to that? I think, in, indeed, after working on one of Mom's plays, uh, it, that's very much evident that he feels that way. Uh, I think it is it's somewhat successful as a style of writing. It's kind of limited, and I'm not so sure that prose drama in unto itself can only be dealt with on, on that superficial level. I think we've all seen quite a lot of sophistication, certainly since the 20s, in playwriting. And certainly, I think, as far as saving civilization, uh, that's a generalization. And I mean, mm-hmm. when I find the play or the politician who's capable of, of saving civilization, this play came out in the same year as Hartford had, which is all about saving civilization. That's true. We're probably defending himself against Shaw. Even though what's very funny is that his, his heroes are very shady in many ways. There are yeah, quite a lot of certainly constant wife, that's very true. Very much so. Yeah. Um, but that, that's a very good point. I have a feeling that's, that, that may be one of the things he was, he was defending. I think he's defending a style of manners, which is very effective. And certainly there's room for that style of playwriting. And, that, and, and I don't think we see enough of that style because it's absolutely elegant and, and the, the level of wit in which problems are dealt with are very special and, and give a great deal of pleasure. 
But to take that statement as a statement of gospel, mm -hmm. I, I think in, in 1986, we're a little uh, beyond that. Yeah. We also had, in addition to Charles, obviously, saving society, he had girls really writing a new serious social drama every year. Ibsen was all over the place. He, it was a defensive statement about this back then. Yeah. This is all I'm doing, and furthermore, nobody else should do anything else either. But Neil Long's was very uh, aware of those kinds of. He, he was in his notes. He constantly defends himself against the claim of competence. The people he said were always damning him with faint praise of of being a competent playwright or a competent short story writer, and uh, or a commercial playwright. And he says, you know, if a play is commercial, does that mean it's bad? Uh, you know, isn't there something about a play that succeeds commercially that's better about a, than a play that doesn't succeed commercially? And should the playwrights have to apologize for uh, enabling people to make their living? Well, hasn't Neil Simon continued that? Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's still the same argument. Coward saying that all sure. the time during the period when he was under something of a cloud and Pinter and Oscar and the sweeping field in England and Coward got very comfy on the subject. Fortunately, he lived long enough to see his book coming back in favor of him. Yeah. Look. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I, I was um, reading a, an essay that, uh, or a, an interview with you uh, where you were comparing the styles of Coward and Shaw and Wilde also, all of whom you have directed. How do you feel that, uh, that Mom, as a playwright, fits into that group? Well, I think you can see a very linear connection, between Little Windows Fan, which is just 25 years before the circle, and the circle and uh, Private Lives was just 10 years afterwards, in that um, the whole setup of, is an elaborate coincidence in which the yeah. audience is asked to participate in Lady Wendemere's fan. Lady Wendemere is very snobbish about what is Erlin's failures done on she's her mother, makes the same tragic mistake Mrs. Erlin made, Mrs. Erlin saves her, is all very carefully constructed parallel. The circle sets up exactly that same parallel between mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, except that it doesn't work that way. The does finally run away, just as her mother-in-law had done. And private lives, of course, that mountainous coincidence of the two, uh, <laughs> two honeymoon couples in an adjoining hotel room, as who formerly husband and wife. What it all gives you in that particular vision is collusion between the audience and the playwright that we all know this is a play, we all know that an outrageous coincidence is being worked. Though also we observe at the given moment, at any moment in time, that the writing is perfectly realistic. It's just the fact that coincidence piles upon coincidence to create a parallel which is not realistic. And it doesn't. Uh, each, but uh, Mom must have looked very hard at Betty Windermere, and I'm sure that Coward was terribly aware of Mom as only Yeah. So they all, there are a lot of interweavings, and particularly in the delight in arbitrarily showing off one structure, showing off one's playwright. 
not trying to conceal art at all, but to proclaim artifice as part of the joy. Yeah. It does seem to be the joy of that, of that kind of playwriting. And it does seem to come out of a world in which that artifice is very much appreciated. You know, it's uh, another thing that, that Mom is uh, always railing against uh, in one form or another is the realism that he finds making himself outmoded as a playwright. That he, uh, you know, he in a sense uh, kind of concedes the field to uh, what he calls the, the drama of character that's replacing the drama of plot and artifice that he you know, considers himself to be a representative of. And it's, uh, it's interesting to me how you feel uh, that that has progressed uh, since Mom's time. Uh, could indeed somebody come out with a play that uses artifice this way and, uh, and have it be accepted in the present day? Well, a noise is Accepted, fantastic question. But the it's, it's parallel been on stage and off stage, and one thing or another. It's uh, it's more farcical, but certainly uh, he shows you all the cards up his sleeve and uh, asks you to rejoice in the arbitrariness and the cleverness of that construction. Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether people would take that degree of arbitrariness of construction seriously. And of course, the British playwrights were remarkably good at comedy, you know, which was, uh, I think, with Lillian Hellman, who got in trouble a lot uh, because it was so melodramatic with the, the kind of plot twists. And that, uh, you know, I, I, I think in seeing both these productions, which are really uh, quite interesting productions if you get a chance to see them, uh, I, I think both of them really continue to amuse audiences remarkably successfully. I mean, I know both evenings that I went, the audiences were totally with the plays, which is something, uh, as a playwright, that I would certainly you know, like to see in my play or any you know, contemporary play. I, wonder, I wondered in seeing it if you felt that was because the plays themselves held up so well or because the audience was so familiar with the form that they felt you know, unthreatened or not as threatened as they would by, let's say, a pinter play where things are more mysterious. Well, well, I'll try to begin on that. Um, <laughs> certainly in the case of The Constant Wife, I'm, I'm not so sure it's a matter of form uh, that becomes the success of that play. There's a reason that, that great, strong actresses have always clung to that role. Amy Burden did that in the early yeah. 70s here. Catherine Cornell brought that play that rather popular in the early 50s here. Uh, we chatted and had done it. Apple Barrymore originated it, surprisingly, in Cleveland prior to its premiere in London, which I found <laughs> rather interesting. Uh, what is so unique about The Constant Wife, I think, was the, the level of dare that he dealt with in 1927. The play deals with a level of sexual and economic independence for women. 
and when a husband is found out to be best friend, we expect her to be outraged, but she is totally logical about it all. And she realizes that she does not love her husband anymore as well. And with clever plot twists, she will begin to develop her own economic independence. And only when she feels she has that economic independence does she feel that she has the right to strike out on her own and attempt an affair. It's amazingly logical. It's totally logical. The, the logic of Mormon is, is, is absolutely irrefutable. The wit comes from the strings of logic of Constance. As the logic pours forth, you have absolutely no answer for it. And neither does any character on that stage. And that is where the humor comes from. That is where the wit comes from. And um, I was told that, that when the show was played was originally done, many people believed that Constance was never really running out on her husband. That uh, running out on her husband if she was not going to have an affair. And that mm -hmm. was a lie. When uh, the, the gentleman with which she was planning on leaving comes into fame, uh, the fact that she will be alone, that truly she will be alone, that he is not going to run off with her. Because audiences really had trouble accepting that fact. That just could not happen in 1927. With that kind of logic and that kind of taste. And this woman is certainly, by no stretch of the imagination, a hellion or a libertine or any other expressive word that would be appropriate for 1927. This is a woman of taste and elegance and charm and wit and propriety, yet uses logic. Mm -hmm. And I think logic is the, is the key to the success of, of that text. And it has nothing to do with any other form than that. The audience is, is just bowled over by the, the simple logic of a word. I was wondering something. He said he so disclaims in the history of in any way wants to save society. Would it appear to you that there was any bit of feminist polemic, any bit of feminist preaching in this, that the woman has a right to do what a man has a right to do? Or is it well, I've often wondered that because he, he plays the devil's advocate so often in the text with uh, Constance's mother who poses the other extreme and Constance's sister is, is truly a libertine in many ways. Uh, indeed he might, but because everyone seems to come up with such a level of equanimity and he treats everybody so fairly and he really is not terribly dogmatic, and none of the characters, no matter what their point of view, really comes off as uh, a negative character. Um, indeed, he may have felt that, but I've always gotten the feeling while working on this that he was chuckling with it, that possibly, well, yes, this is true, and he feels that's the case, but I don't think he really wanted to make the statement. I think it's, it's just playing with the words of Tom Stoppard. If you, if you look at Stopper, there's, there's outrageous logic in this illo in illogical world that he creates on that stage. Mm -hmm. So when you take two and two and it equals four, you can't argue with that. And I, I, I think he, he again enjoys his conceit uh, in the way in which he's constructed that. Yeah, I saw two things that the audience uh, really picked up on in both plays, but especially in The Constant Wife. Uh, the first is the victory of the woman over the man in that play, in which the man, the husband has had an affair and the wife finds out, finds out and manages to turn the situation around so that at the end she goes off to have her own affair and, you know, feels, and has every intention of maintaining the marriage. Quite free in her conscience about it. Sure. Uh, 
But there's also this matter that um, the British really had their nose tweaked in that time. In both plays, yes. really. Uh, I think, you know, American audiences can never get enough of that. You know, there's a real delight in seeing, um, you know, the, the whole manners of, uh, you know, the, the proper English turned on their head and used as a kind of weapon against them. Surprisingly, uh, occasionally I've done some negative comments on the production from people who said that some of these characters would never, as we have staged it, as we have performed it, would have never respond as they do. Mostly speaking about John and the husband's reaction to it. Uh, because a number of the characters lose their equanimity and lose their, their cool and the calm demeanor. Uh, what, what is so playful about the work is that whatever this image is of the English aloofness of, of the period and so forth, is, is a pose that is for society. But nonetheless, when doors are closed, we all respond with our gut reaction. And I think where he has enabled the piece to work so well is that he closes the doors. And once you close the doors, you are saying, now we can drop down our guard and deal as human beings. And then you see the battle between the equanimity and, and the staid, cool quality and the, the foam that is pouring forth from the surface as people's, uh, people are, are dealing with their dilemmas. And I think that's where he gets a lot of his playfulness. I think the play would not work as well if we stayed very much in the public environment. Mm -hmm. So much with these plays, with the circle as well. We close the doors, and behind those doors, as uh, while the film as well, you can you can do so much that you, you couldn't possibly do in a public environment. It's funny in the constant wife how close he comes to. He goes into forests at times with the husband, and that was brought out. I, I thought in your production that, that by the end the husband is really a figure of ridicule uh, to a large extent. He's um, his arrogance and his pose has been so completely leveled. Uh, that it, it is the case, and I'm, I'm told that uh, a couple of other productions never really concentrated on that. I know we're opposite Captain Cornell, Brian O'Hearn played the role. Uh, Brian O'Hearn is an actor I could never conceive of getting on the And I know that we played, we played his destruction to the hilt. Mm -hmm. And we, we really took a great deal of relish, and I, I noticed <laughs> Constance if he had to be sitting on the side there. And I think when we have rehearsed the scenes and played through rehearsals, the actress and myself and the actor had a great deal of fun in, in, in peeling the levels, peeling away at this man with, with charm and with wit and just total calmness, so that for most of those scenes, Constance is seated, whereby in the rest of the play, she is parading, and we see the, the, the satin moving and the costume is traveling. Uh, for that scene, she sits for most of the time, and we let him squirm. We let him walk 
and move and open the doors because it's getting warm. And Stephen <laughs> gradually just becomes outraged, and um, and she just nibbles on chocolates, and it's just so calm. And, and darling, it's logic. Deal with it. And he does, and he does at the end. Yes, yeah. uh, he becomes emotional, which is so unusual for the uh, the British, especially the British male. It seems you know that uh, propriety is kept up. Exactly. At all costs. But here again, we close the doors, and I think that's the important thing. And uh, Coward did it, and I, I think that is the, the the technical tool that I think many of these playwrights have used. I think we all have used that. Uh, once you come into the public domain, you you, you receive some of the more restrictions. Yeah. I wonder where that um, puts us in terms of American playwriting, because it's, it's certainly true that all these British playwrights were able to play against this enforced morality and this real priggishness. Uh, in the no, no, now it's, now it's the fall of the empire. That, uh, it's all is very, a very uh, scatological, very out in the open kitchen sink. Arsene Bell is not a drama, yeah. except for a few things, cases that explicitly tend to this. Commercial play. You don't see that anymore. Sure, of course. No, it's a, uh, I, I thought even, uh, and this is not in any way to demean your production, which I, which I really like, but I, it, it occurred to me in, by the, the time the husband was really at his wit's end, that it, it even reminded me a bit of No Sex Please Were British, where it gets, where that seems to be, mm -hmm. you know, something that, um, you know, that kind of forcing element. We were very aware of that there were times. It was a very interesting thing that I think uh, is worth sharing. Uh, when we were playing with that scene, a slight farcical element was needed. Now, we found that we went too far. It ended up being Monty Python. And mm -hmm. if we eliminated it completely, it became Terence Radigan. And there was one time we just said, well, let's just play it really straight in, in this battle. And we had separate tables. And it was yeah. very interesting, but uh, I was rather bored, and I didn't think we captured the humor. Uh, yet, if, if we carried it too far, we could we could be chewing the scenery. We could absolutely go off the deep end, and it would be John Cleese, you know, dealing with his wife mm -hmm. in the scene, and it would be it would be a Terry Gilliam script or, <laughs> or something like that. So we found uh, it was it was a really fine line in how you were going to play it. I think also I don't believe it's it's really that final scene never really came home for Ingrid Bergman's production or many other productions. Mostly because Constance is a diva role, and when you're dealing with star vehicles, you end up end up with so many restrictions about how far you can go at the taking the attention off of your star. And I suspect that most of the stars who have done the role would never permit yeah. that scene to happen, which obviously we were able to do. I directed Ingrid in another play, uh -huh. and she. It was as generous as she could be to other actors, though she didn't have much stage experience and therefore didn't know to sit still during the people's lives. She was not able to do that. She was very considerate, and I don't think there would have been any uh, deliberate downplaying of the other man's part. Of course, also it was John Gilbert directing it, and uh, they did a, a, a very very contained British tradition. I didn't see that production. I did see Carvel. I didn't see that. So, but I'll just say that Ingrid herself, I don't think, would be blamed for uh, 
Oh, I'm sure not in that case. But nonetheless, in dealing with a star vehicle, again, if you're dealing with John Wheeler, it would be very contained. The, the, the commercial quality would say that we must keep that attention where it is. I, I, I know I'm making a generalization, and possibly that is not accurate, and I certainly don't mean Ms. Bergman at all. But I think we have seen productions where you, you cannot, when you're dealing with a vehicle, explore every nook and cranny of the text. I think we've just seen that. So I'm making that kind of a generalization for whatever that is worth. Mm -hmm. And I think once you decide that it is not going to be a star vehicle, you then can really explore the nooks and the crannies with your cast. And uh, I think under those, um, th th that lack of restriction, I think our production was successful. And that we can explore so many other common choices for the sister, for instance. Yeah. Uh, many people have told me that they had seen production, they never realized that sister was such a deliciously arch character that could have so much fun in every one of her scenes. It didn't occur to me in reading it that, uh, you know, that she could be pushed that far. I thought that worked very well. We, really give you again, an environment like Equity Library Theater is an actor's theater. And um, again, when I'm playing with... When I usually play with a script, I'm, I'm very concerned about the actor. I think it's an important thing for all for playwrights and directors to always remember, in my opinion, that theater is the, is the actor's medium. It's primarily not the director or the playwright's medium, by which I mean that it comes alive only in the visual and that no matter what you have written, no matter what you have directed, if that, those words and that director cannot get that performer to really deliver the essence of what you're doing, you fail. Mm -hmm. Not specifically you as the director or the author, but the production has failed. Uh, whereby in film you can play with editing and you can, you can give a, a performer can give a performance and it can be entirely different by the time you finish editing the entire piece. And considering that, um, you know, I think that's just a very important point to bring out, that when you go all the way, you can explore so many possibilities uh, with talented actors and what they can bring to life. I wonder for both directors, um, we've recently seen Hay Fever revived on Broadway uh, to certainly very good, if not great, probably great acclaim. Uh, you know, in a production I, that I've seen, I, you know, I, I think it has a lot of good elements in it. I don't know if it's perfectly successful. But, but how do you feel about uh, either of uh, the, plays that are, the plays that you're directing being open on Broadway? Is there an audience? Would it be uh, something that with the right actors could be? Uh, I would think that these plays would become, to an extent, vehicles, because of, they, were, they were written that yes. way. They were certainly going to have all the protocols played, but you need, you need to uh, conceive of them as star appearances. That was part of what the kid amended the other two. Yeah. Certainly Geraldine Page uh, epitomizes something of that in, in her performance. It does do a little bit what you're talking about, that, uh, that when she frees herself and sweeps around, uh, it's not always possible for other people to hold on to their points. But, but she, doesn't, <laughs> she has no malice at all, but she just has an intuitive energy which becomes a power. Sure. And, uh, and it does become, well, also, perfectly 
she was conceived. And she they asked me to do it for her because she wanted to do the play. I said, you'll give it more than someone. And I would be ACT. And so it was always Jerry's show. And um, always would be under those circumstances. And I remember I did see Cornell because I was in the black I don't know the words. It was her show. Uh, and um, I don't know the person I can remember. I would think that this kind of play for Broadway would have to be uh, very lavishly cast with people who are particularly famous yeah. at the moment. Something like the Burton and uh, Taylor private lines or something like that. Not that that didn't work. But in theory, <laughs> yes. the play was theory. Yes, yes, correct. right. That's just an appropriate the, the idea. I may say that kind of I did do the uh, private lives of Earth and Grimes and Brian Bedford, and we got very nice reviews, and she won the tone and all kinds of things happened out of it. It still did not work financially. It ran, but it never made money. And uh, and it was had all the publicity it could get and awards yeah. and everything else. Well, there is a highly literate, sophisticated audience for a little while. Yeah. And we did very good business for a while, and then I love overall. How did you feel about uh, Hay Fever I'm being sorry. able to run? I, I, I just, not, not this production as such, but just the fact that it's being able to sustain a run, uh, you know, for this song seems to be doing very well. I know I saw it in previews, and... Uh, you know, I just didn't think, however good the production could get, that they would find an audience out there. I thought, as you're saying, that there's, you know, a diminishing number of people well, who will pay that kind of price. I was to talking you. about after, after quite a long while. Yeah. He had a very, very good season, and then, but it was thought that it would go on and on and on and on and on, and someone would be too much for it. Uh, I don't know. Um, no idea. So you think Off-Broadway is the, probably <coughs> the best place to do these, uh, these plays? I don't want to get anybody down there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought if you said the circle of the square is Broadway, for instance, what's Broadway and what's off? <laughs> that is true. Broadway. Yeah. I, I think the reality is today, with the, with the cost of theater, uh, people, the general public, just in their mind, cannot justify, except for the rare few cases, of seeing a period piece without stars. To sure. bring back Heartbreak House without the caliber of a Rex Harrison and Rosemary Harris. I may say, we did make a barber just two years before there. No stars tall, and we had Stan Lee for the entire run. Right, right, but that was a circle in the square. Yeah, but so was a Harper. Right, no, I'm aware of that. Yeah, but I think we were able to set up that place without stars. Right, no, I'm aware of that. But my point is that, going beyond Circle in the Square, mm -hmm. that a heartbreak house could have happened at the, at the Broadhurst, mm -hmm. provided you had Rex Harrison. Now, it was at Circle in the Square, but that's a diff still a, a slightly different environment as far as budget and so forth and salary considerations. Um, that's where it was done, it was successful, and it was a relatively interesting video production that was recently on of that. Yeah. But nonetheless, I don't think beyond the confines of a circle in the square 
or ideally you might consent to a theater company, I think it would be pretty daring to try any of those plays at the Broadhurst without the star, which is getting back to what we said before. And I think that that's the fear and reality. And I think these things were written for stars. Yeah. Certainly The Constant Wife is a wonderful star vehicle and in its cleverness holds together as a play, and the circle does as well. There's a huge amount of wit and insight um, in the very simple things, the simple comments. Uh, in The Constant Wife, Constant makes a comment that um, she feels that the, 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 the common people are, uh, what's the exact line? How, we'll move even <laughs> off, off the panel that the, the common people are far more clever oh, than they Simple statements as that, and there are four a page, yeah. you know, or uh, why, I don't think I have to answer that. I've often noticed that the questions don't really that need answering are usually the most difficult to answer. Simple planes of words that are so true, so pithy, so right on in, in logic, in, 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 in dealing with any form of literate medium today. Those comments just fall off the page in both of those plays. Yeah. It doesn't stop. And it's that level of wit that, that you stay with. Where, unfortunately, at times he overwrites. Uh, unlike Noah Coward, who had learned just to just hit it, and hit the beat, and go on. Mom, very often, as uh, I think many people who have spent more of their time uh, writing prose, he tends to overwrite. Yeah. But once you get past that, if you can, uh, which can be done, there's so much there that how much cutting did you do just uh, about directors in getting those productions to present-day audiences? I did virtually none. I mean, because I had done the play before, and it looked like we could get a good idea. Probably it doesn't the people audiences want to follow the whole story. And kind of so I thought I'll wait and see in front of the audience how much cutting. So I did it even cutting. An occasional line that impeded the transition. Uh, we did a chunk of cutting, but there again, not for cutting's sake at all, uh, or to or to uh, eliminate as as Tony Page did with Heartbreak House, with the entire character, and nothing to that extreme. It was all spots where I felt it was terribly overwritten. Um, surprisingly, this text, the script we used, was uh, a very early script. I gathered from Captain Cornell production, and I can only um, surmise this, and possibly you might know the answer, that possibly Mom rewrote huge chunks. I know that this scripture, I don't guess the circle, that it was modernized and the slang modernized. I went back, not to the acting edition, but back to the first edition, because he figured the older the slang, the better. And all the well, semi-obsolete places we put back in. He did, he periodically rewrote things, or had somebody else did for him. Uh, to, so the illusions would be modernized so that things would have, wouldn't have to be in very aggressive and sense of and thought it was strictly contemporary. Which is true, because the Cornell production had Constant was done in contemporary period in the 1950s. But I found in that text, huge monologues mm-hmm. were given to Constance. In our script, she may say a sentence, and there were eight for that one um, in the Cornell production. Very often I found that, and um, I kept none of that because I didn't think it really worked. And even going basically using the older edition, I did chunks of editing because I found it got very repetitious. And I, 
I, I, I did play a bit with cutting. The one thing that I did do with cutting, which I think a director has an absolute obligation, uh, if you're going to play with the text and you don't have that playwright with you to discuss, obviously you want to deal as if you were. And I know for any cut that I wanted to do, I would put it through in pencil and then I'd put it away. And then I would read it through the next day and then I'd put it away again. So that there were at least 48 hours between my thinking about a cut before I would give it to a cast. And sometimes even when I heard the word said, I would go back to the original. So that I tried very hard to cut, to tighten, and for no more than, than that purpose. So that nobody really suspected that there were cuts, even though there were, I would say, a total of about four pages of dialogue in the entire text that were lifted out in sentences in, in chunks here and there. What about the language? Did you... Uh change anything, or think about changing anything to update it, to, to make yeah. it more comprehensible to a present-day audience? As I said, I went in the first direction, I went back to an anthology of British gold, somewhere in the 30s, which had to play from the absolutely first edition, I think, without any alteration at all, and because it seemed that our moral values have changed, so that the play would work much better as a period piece than as a modern contemporary play, and um, so anything I could do to make it sound like an anthropological report. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I will, I may say that, it's when I was doing the production of it, it was touring through uh, the West, and I happened to be in promotion for it in Denver. And I said, there will be great difficulty for modern audiences understanding this play, because after all, uh, nowadays when a woman lives in sin, leaving her husband, nobody cares, and there is no social pressure on her. And uh, which is an essential part of play. And there was a lot of women who were very hard drinking, very sophisticated, gender, newspaper women said, I gave a party the other day. And there was a couple there who were living together, and she said three people called up the next day and said they wish they had not been invited because they didn't want to meet those people. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised. <laughs> and also, it exists. It exists. <laughs> <laughs> it exists. I think to, to take a, a, the works of or any period playwright, and to do anything to update it is, is wrong. It was uh, Well, you're talking about the words. Mm -hmm. You're talking about dealing with the words. If you right. can find a way to keep that text and set it in a different environment and, and do something that's constructive with it, I say, fine, try it and let's see if that works. For me to take mom and update it, for instance, they did that for Kraft and Cornell because all the images were changed to the early 50s. Uh, we kept those images as originally written in the late 20s. Beyond those images, the style of speaking, the kind of slang that is there, uh, I don't think it works if you change those things, if you change it for that purpose of updating. To change, to tighten, to work as if this was an author that was living. Mm -hmm. I would want to feel that any change that I made, any edit that I made, I would like to believe that that playwright said, you know, you're right. In seeing that scene play with that actor, that works better. That's what I'm, good luck, you got it. I would like to believe that that was the case. And yeah. I think if the director cannot truly believe that the playwright would have liked your choice uh, when you're editing as such, then I think you're doing a disservice to the play. Yeah. No, I certainly... On occasion, I had to persuade the playwright that he liked something he didn't know that he liked. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's true also. <laughs>
Do you uh, do you both feel that the constructions, uh, the construction of the plays that, that you worked on, uh, did epitomize something that you would call effective playwriting, or, or very something that really uh, is very strongly uh, a force in keeping the play, uh, you know, able to be done in a present-day context? I would like to tease the definition of effective a little bit. Yeah, it's a but difficult word, something actually. Something that is going to produce an effect, or something that is made up out of effects. It's different. I would say something that, that theatrically uh, is able to get the point across, that it's, uh, it's and, and is able to sustain the evening of theater. Well, under those circumstances, you would say that uh, Endgame is effective there. I think it gets to come across and goes to the other. So it's very difficult. I find it a difficult definition. Yeah, yeah. I would say it's that the result-oriented might be another phrase, and the very beginning line, a criticism. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I would say that the playwright feels he has an obligation to be clear and interesting and get to come back, uh, and that these obligations are not sacrificed to some other purpose. But um, satisfaction of anticipating rightly or wrongly was going to happen next. Quite often, you think you're smarter than you really are because you <laughs> foresee wrongly what's going to happen. And that, uh, that business of, of showing the fact you've got cards up your sleeve, showing that this is a magic trick and uh, that that's part of the pleasure. Are there any contemporary playwrights you can that come to mind who do the same thing or have the same... Uh, Ability to, to use their wit yeah. and artifice to. Because in very different ways, Stockard and Frame both are certainly showing off. Yeah. And that uh, the art that does in concealing art is not very evident in the case. Um, well, so, well, certainly the real thing came to, came to my mind in, in seeing both productions as a predecessor. Of and even, even benefactors is that you are asked to be startled in the news for how many changes you can progress your things and stuff. Yeah. I, I wanted to read one more um, one more thing that Mom wrote, and I'd like to open this up to the audience and uh, you know and find out uh, your views on uh, what makes a play effective or what is different uh, in the situation of playwriting from a director's point of view, what you look for. Uh, now, as, as opposed to directing a classic. Uh, this, um, this quote from Mom is uh, actually from a uh, preface to one of his short story collections. But he's talking about uh, how, he learned, how he learned structure in writing. 
He said, uh, my early experience as a dramatist told me to leave out everything that did not serve the dramatic value of my story. It told me to make incident follow incident in such a manner as to lead up to the climax I had in mind. I am not unaware of the disadvantages of this method. It gives you a tightness of effect that is sometimes disconcerting. You feel that life does not dovetail into its parts with such neatness. In life, story, in life, stories straggle, they begin nowhere, and tail off without a point. And I, I felt certainly in something like that, he's anticipating, to a certain extent, what's going to follow uh, his era of playwriting. And, uh, you know, I think modern playwriting, uh, which is changing all the time, and, and as you said before, difficult to make generalizations about. Even that general term, uh, that becomes the, the, the hallmark of any, any successful play. I think Glengarry Glen Ross, just to, let, to go to yeah. another extreme let's, of playwriting, let's do that. Let's get in many ways is very effective. It is effective playwriting for what he is trying to achieve, for the characters he is trying to deal with, with the hard, biting edge with which he is trying to work, yeah. with that cutting language, with that minimal amount of plot, he is very effective in achieving this uh, destructive microcosm that he has in, in the world of real estate and, and, and likewise in many other worlds. So for me, that is an effective play. Nightmother is effective playwriting because there are many wonderful metaphors and images that are, are there, the, the, the nails, the uh, nail polish and the manicure. Wonderful images which are, that Marsha Norman creates, uh, that are very actable and yet creates this this ultimate logical duel between these two characters. Um, Neil Simon is very effective in, in what he does. I, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure. For me, I, any playwright who really achieves what that play is to achieve, I'm mm -hmm. uh, working on Beyond Therapy next and, and spending some time looking at it, it's very effective for what Durang wants to achieve yeah, in, in dealing with the world of psychoanalysis and dealing with that arch energy that we're all stuck with. Um, he goes right for the jugular, absolutely does not use any floral display at all, as, as Mom would, and is most effective in the darkest, in the dankest, and the most bitingly and scathingly funny kind of humor that after you're done laughing with it, it's like, oh my God, why am I laughing at these people? These, 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 these are not pleasurable people yeah. at all. So in, in many ways, uh, effective playwriting, if, if the play works, it, it, it really is effective. That's a very general term, but... Incidentally, I was saying it about Langara Vianor. You think there's almost no plot until the end when you realize that all those first scenes are giving you clues to a detective story. It's a whodunit. And that all the way through, that you just think they're sitting in a cafe pitching each other, and then at the end it turns out that these are people who involved in a crime and the least suspected person did it and all constructed like an Agatha Christie, maybe. <laughs> but he, he hides that, you know, <laughs> you have yeah. unlikely those people he doesn't let you know that that's what he's leading to. There's certainly a big difference in the structure of the two plays just mentioned and the, the mom plays or, or other three-act plays uh, that were produced at the same time is that they don't, they go right into the middle of the story. Rather than, you know, certainly the, with both of the productions of the mom plays, you know, he very carefully goes about setting everything up and there's a, 
a feeling that the first act, that's what the first act is for, to introduce you to all the characters and situations. And, um, you know, I, I, I found that after the experience of, of Beckett and Pinter and so many people cutting away and cutting away, that that's the hardest part about going back to, uh, you know, to plays that are before that period. Well, there's a tradition whereby the audience is supposed to give you the first act, and uh, they get paid off if they choose to return. Always a gamble. Well, that was still a strong tradition in this country up to, up to like, well after the war, plays of John Yeah. I think we also uh, find a three-act play. I think people are afraid of the three-act play today. Uh, this is a television age, and people want things instantly. And obviously, if you're going to fight your playwright, you're dead. It absolutely cannot work. Uh, so if you push and you condense and you play those games, you're doing the disservice to the playwright and the point is, don't do it. Leave the play alone. Let's just bury it and put it away in the tomb with Aida and let's not deal with it. And let's just deal with contemporary plays. Yeah. The, the key is to challenge the audience. And in many ways, taking a play like The Circle and Constant Life and Hay Fever, in a strange way, challenges an audience. Because we're not, we're not going to get on a treadmill. We're not going to take... We're taking the local. We're not doing the Metroliner from New York to Washington. We're yeah. taking lots and lots of local stops. And if you can do it properly, you find that audience stays with you. But it becomes more difficult to direct, to act, to produce, I suspect, uh, because our minds will wander. Yeah. And it's got to just Indeed. work so cleanly and nicely that that audience will just stop and say, I will take the local stops because that's a very interesting little town over there on the way to Washington. And um, let's stop there for a little while. And it becomes, it becomes difficult, whereby the audience in the 30s and 40s and the 20s were accustomed to words yeah. and did not mind taking the four-hour trip. We didn't take the hour-and-a-half trip. It's the only way it went. Yeah. And uh, when Kaufman and Hart started taking express lines, uh, you know, and, and, and the room service, yeah. and then that yeah. kind of stuff. That became very daring, I think, for an audience, because we're speeding up incredibly. Uh, there were still three very slow acts. They were three acts, though. You're right, though. They were three acts, though, in structure. No, what you're saying is definitely true. I never, the night I saw a constant wife, uh, the audience was very much with it, but after the second act, they certainly felt, I've gotten as much now as I get from a contemporary play. I mean, this is as long as most contemporary plays go. And it seemed to come to a conclusion. And it was almost, uh, you know, there, it comes to uh, what is actually uh, almost a uh, false path, that, you know, where you think the play is going. And, you know, I think the glory of the constant life is really the third act. Because it goes, it's so eccentric in the direction it just goes. It goes for the jugular. Yeah, and you it don't does. really expect that. No, not to. No place. one really kind of knows genteel, where you're going. A genteel feel about it. For a lot of the first two acts. Bob knew that because in the second act, towards the end of the second act, after we have revealed the uh, infidelity, and we have revealed that Constance had been aware of it from the beginning of the play, and all of those little ends have tightened, uh, Constance is alone with mother and daughter, uh, mother and her sister, and the mother says, what have you got in mind? You have some devilry in mind that I can't for the life of me figure it out. Mm -hmm. I, mother, 
And pretty much we're going to end now. And we possibly have five minutes left to the act. So Mom knew that there was some devilry that was being played. I tried in um, directorially to pinpoint that. Um, if the play is written for a curtain, because yeah. they have curtain lines. I took a different tack directorially, which I think helped that play, and I think helped the audience. At the end of each act, I was I also playing some coward music. Um, I pull the lights down, and I take a spot on, on Constance by the door, in the same location, yeah. all three acts, thinking. Just thinking where the mind is going. So that the audience, each time, I suspect, and I suspect it is working, I find that audience, because that, when I get to those last scenes, I'm looking around to see what they're doing. And they're all <laughs> leaning in. Yeah. And what is, what is that woman thinking about? Namely, you know, tune in for Act 2 or, or Act 3. So that you sort of lead that audience along a little bit without yeah. giving anything away, without using words, to just say that there is more, there is thought going on, there is, there is a process that's happening in this woman's mind. Because if you don't go with that woman's mind, you will not go with the play. Uh, she, she dominates the entire piece. She does. She does in a way that really in the circle there isn't a single character. Uh, well, nobody's right in the circle. Right. The uh, character of the ex-husband, um, many people sort of identify with mom, seems to be right. But the whole last 15 minutes of the play are devoted to the joy of proving him wrong. But it's been so damn wild. <laughs> uh, that, uh, well, it, it is interesting because it is very unpolemical. Yeah. It spends is. the whole of the play setting up an anti-romantic attitude that it's not worth it to make sacrifices for love, 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 love. Yeah. Lovers get ugly, they hate each other, they, <laughs> everything goes wrong. It's not worth it, it's not worth it, it's not worth it. And then in the last few minutes, he says, well, I don't know, nobody could possibly tell. And when the young lovers go off, one of the old men says, nobody can learn from experience because notice that the circumstances are the same. And which yeah. leaves you up, totally up in the air. Which is a wonderful line. Really. Nobody, that, <laughs> this whole play is dedicated to the premise that people should learn from experience. Then he says, nobody can, and there's no reason why they should because yeah. you never tell. And so you're left very up, up in the air. Gradually the focus goes through the older couple because that even when the younger couple get together, it's the older couple's reaction, which has got the theatrical meat in it. Yeah. The emotion of, it, of, the, of those two people. And uh, also, uh, <coughs> the fact that they're getting a little vengeance on Clive, the uh, father who has, of course, humiliated them so terribly yeah. all through the thing. And they're just getting a laugh on him when he thinks he knows everything. So, it's a... It's a startlingly objective ending, and yet it pays off the audience. The audience normally pull for romance, anyhow. And so they get the romance, and they say, well, it's probably not going to work. It's probably going to be a disaster, but we can all enjoy the moment while it lasts, which is really all the play it says. It yeah. I was intrigued me that girl was off the melee stage with her boyfriend. <laughs> the next thing we hear from mom is her letter, in which the wife takes the lover and murders him out of the United States, which is all the sequel. <laughs> That's an idea. Do, uh, no, but the, well, the basic thing is that everything turns out badly in the world, but it might have a little fun along the way, really, is all you can a great deal Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, that is the thing about both plays, is that they certainly take uh, a joy in the art of conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, even though 
the characters in both plays are not themselves uh, the wittiest people in their societies. You know, they're not, you know, the, the comparable, uh, you know, the, the, the Shaws or the, uh, the people who would, you know, necessarily uh, be experts at conversation. They do, at least to, you know, late 20th century years, have an expertise in conversation which places them in their time. Conversation was the style in the 20s and 30s. People spoke. And as the years have moved on, we speak less and less. Mm -hmm. And terseness becomes the key. Now, if somebody can master that, as Pinter can, with some very exciting theatrical work, that's wonderful. But uh, we're, we're left in England with the image of Edward Bond playing with something, which work in many ways as well. But uh, there again, we're getting back to what, is, what becomes chancy about these kinds of plays, what gets chancy about the polemics of Shaw. Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with, with, with what this man is saying. Well, there's a great deal of wit and a great deal of intelligence there, and you, you have to go with it. You have to spend the time with it. Yeah. And I think we're afraid. Also, it's a simple matter. In Shaw's case, more than in the case of Mom, the Mom does have some longish sentences. They don't have to be spoken in ascending fashion. That uh, you have to have lungs and you have to have a diaphragm, and uh, that you need the same kind of equipment that a singer needs. And you can see actors turning various colors. <laughs> and as the time goes on, yes. when, they just, when they know that you can't make your point if you take a breath yet and you don't have any of that. And that, that, that's a, a very specific problem that Shaw has, that he's obsessed with music and all the actors are really. So he just we inherit that problem when we're not trained for it. Like, uh, even our Shakespearean actors are trained for it. As a Roger Reese to hand when he was so embarrassed by the set of the movie and on stage so that his toes stuck over the edge. <laughs> all of them have spoken all in a hasty monotone. So that it became the actor who is superfluous every one because he was so afraid of being more terrible. Yeah. Like John Williams as well. Mm -hmm. Another fine example. Tennessee Williams. Tennessee Williams, yeah. of just having to go with the musicality of the lines and to play the long speech and to play all those words because you're dealing with a puppet. Yeah. And you've got to mold it and shape it and shape the rhythm of those words. Uh, you don't spot it as cleanly in, in, let's say, Chekhov, which I suspect has some marvelous uh, poetry and the writing and all and a lot of wonderful choices, but you deal with translation. And as soon as you deal with translation, you, you end up dealing with a collaboration once you've left the English language. So I, I, I suspect you never really get a true feeling of what Ibsen wrote and what Chekhov wrote. I always have felt cheated because I didn't know that language. And uh, when Good I looked at it, well, that's the case. <laughs> well, well, look at so many of the translations, so many of the adaptations. You have Lampard Wilson's adaptation of I'll check out the three sisters. Yeah. And you can look at the, some of the Stark Young and, uh, and take a look at the different uh, yeah, Ibsen's of the Galliana and, and, and other choice. Harry Carlson is doing some now. Yeah, they're you, all very different. All incredibly different. You can, can believe you're, you're dealing with three different playwrights writing on the same theme and you sort of just took the same characters. Uh, it's, a, it's a collaboration. I always wondered what Shaw would sound like in uh, you know, translate into another language. I mean, that's a they formidable They do France all the time. But there again, they are trained on um, Tirad in French. And speak a great deal on one breath, that is the one thing they have been trained to do, something else. 
my words probably so, so well. Well, I think in, in going to Shaw, I think what, what works for Shaw in, in, the, uh, in the theater here is that people know what to expect. They know that you know, these long speeches occur and that they don't expect really verisimilitude to, you know, uh, they, they go almost as an alternative to present day uh, society or, you know. Another thing, people come up with intellectually, but I did uh, Mount Silverman for the ADA right back in the 60s and it began in the late 70s, the circumstance. And the scenes that had been most difficult before were the easiest ones because people were able to follow the arguments slightly ahead of them, just enough ahead of them so that they feel comfortable. Yeah, it's like opera. Mm -hmm. you, really go, you get familiar with everything surrounding the play, and you go specifically for the form and the beauty of it. Well, the people will hang in for the argument, whereas before they endure them, I think, indeed they do. Yeah, but still, that presents the, uh, the present-day playwright, I know, with, uh, you know, you really, you can't do that anymore. I mean, unless, unless you write a 19th century play, uh, which I know I've, I've been working on a play that takes place in the 19th century for a long time, partly because uh, I, I wanted to get away from all the restrictions on language of what you can use in, uh, you know, in the contemporary theater. You can't. The cadence of the voice, I think, the, the, the style of speaking, the terseness. Again, the dealing as, as the years went backward and the calendar moved back in that direction, conversation was the norm. Yeah. And you, you would use all of these words, and you would expect to hear them. But I mean, we're both talking now. But this is this wouldn't be conversation if we just had a drink, and we were just talking about some things that were happening. Again, this becomes somewhat of performance, as yeah. a, as opposed to conversation, which is very clear, very sharp, and, and yet performance is not a bad thing to have your characters doing in the play. Put them in a situation where they have to perform for each other or for somebody. Yeah. Not, not just six characters, which is obvious, but he always manages to give you a situation where somebody has to prove something so that the conversation becomes performance to try to convince somebody or to relive a story for them. Yeah. And it, by that process, gets subtly larger than life and gets away with it. So they're nasty things like that drama. And um, I would say um, our actors are able to speak the difficult things. And um, they wouldn't be afraid because the language in the theatre never really reflects the way people actually talk the whole spectrum of this. Yeah. At one time, nowadays, the only words you're allowed to use were the words you were not allowed to use before. <laughs> and, so that, uh, but in neither case is it really proved to nature because. Yeah. Uh, People in actual life, as you say, there's a whole spectrum. We can talk very complicated Latin sentences because we've been dealing with them all and has them in it, put them in our heads. <laughs> and we could also get rough and cut scene without any trouble, whatever. So that in reality, the whole of that spectrum is there and you shouldn't be afraid of it in terms of that some part of reality is not considered real at the moment. I think another uh, wonderful thing that, that, that some playwrights will do, my finger, Peter Schaffer, he will take the most theatrical of imagery. He will not deal with um, a battle between a mother and a daughter and the daughter's planning on suicide. He takes situations that are so theatrical and he hunts mm -hmm. for that that he, he automatically puts himself in a ballpark where he can 
explore all of the verbiage and he can play so many choices because he's dealing with passions and, and passions on such um, a dynamic, I don't want to say unrealistic because that's not what I mean, mm. but it's a heightened realism, uh, the dealing with the horses and so forth, mm. the equus, dealing with, um, I'm forgetting the title of the piece he's dealing with now, now and of course, and Amadeus and Royal Hunt of the Sun. Uh, he failed the most when he did five-finger exercise, when he really tried to deal with the family drama. Yeah, yeah it, it started him off. Yes, it, it did start him off, and that's rather decent in many ways, even though it's, I think, rather um, sits there uh, in, in many cases. But this is a choice that he has made, and because he takes very theatrical images and theatrical yes. plots, he allows himself just like you're exploring the 19th century now. Mm -hmm. When a playwright does that, uh, even Eric Overmeyer was on the verge, mm -hmm, yeah. and Eric mm -hmm. went back into the 19th century. It's the, it's the, it seems to be the only way today, I think, a contemporary playwright can free themselves to confine themselves yeah. to older forms of playwriting. I think that's what a playwright has to face today, is that question of what is specifically theatrical about what you're doing. Because we have all these other medium, uh, in which to be expressed, and uh, there's television, there's movies, and everything is less expensive than the theater. Sure. So what are you going to create that is uh, so unusual? Or well, it, it sets a form. Neil Simon likes sitcom. Um, I, I'm doing a program now of teaching with some inner city kids, and um, it's a playwriting workshop, and I'm using Bill Cosby show, and I'm taking some of the tapes there. In just dealing with the basics, the very basics of playwriting from a very simple mind, from something that they can connect with as visual. And you deal with one scene that sets up a plot. You deal with your one scene that's your subplot. You throw in your hint of your theme, which you will then take a half a sentence to cover towards the end. You're dealing with 22 minutes of, of, of dialogue, yeah. uh, of conversation and characters that is so small and so limited in scope and can be very effective this is what so many playwrights are doing today. And this is what Simon does. Now he's very clever with his wit and he can do a triple take on a comic line as, as very few people can. And there's a great deal of, of jokes, maybe not wit, but certainly jokes that are, are effective. But so many playwrights are working on, in such small scenes, such small ballparks, as opposed yeah. to a large scale, a large grand environment. When you talk about attention span before, and that's certainly the factor. A huge fact. I mean, that's what makes Mammoth work, because he, he just, you, you can't get bored with him. Even if, you can get tired with some of his work, because it gets kind of, it gets tiring after a while, after you've seen enough of his work. I get a little bit tired of that style. I would like to say, I'd like him to try other things. Yeah, it's so tough. It's like after it's American Buffalo and Glengarry, it is consistent, it is... And it is gonna, yeah. and then we're gonna, and then we're gonna, and then we're just going. And then, of course, is the life in the theater, of gentle and sentimental. Yes, yeah. That's very true. Now, that's a very different does, play. Yeah. That's right, he did do and, that. And Edmund, is, Edmund is a little bit different also, uh, though it's also very dark. Uh, it, it does uh, deal a little bit less insistently uh, on the few characters. I mean, there he opens it up with a, uh, trying to let in other parts of society. But still, it's, it's still pretty relentless in the way it pursues you. I mean, life in the theater is, you know, in a few of his one acts, early one acts, uh, Doug Variations and, and things like that, you know, have a softer tone to them. 
And relentless would never be a word that I think you can use for Somerset Mom. <laughs> or or Noel Coward or Lonsdale or for any of those period pieces. No, no, no. It's never relentless. It's a very different kind of relentless because it's words. And today what we think of, oh, God, she, will she shut up already? <laughs> All right already. Let's stop. And, and this is what we have to deal with today to get past that, to say, no, let's not have her shut up. Yeah. Let's listen to her. Let's listen to him because there are wonderful words that are coming out. Let's not be afraid of those words. Sit back and enjoy it. Yeah. And I still get nervous when I sit there, when I catch the show uh, once a week or so, and I get nervous in that first act. And I'm pleased when I see that the audience is with it, but I'm always afraid that the 1986 audience is going to lose I'm going to lose them during that first act. Yeah. We haven't, but I, I, I'm it's always concerned about it. Yeah. Years ago, I was doing a three-act play, which was fairly fragile. And um, I hyped up my uh, first act exposition, which is a great deal with a lot of activity and energy. And I remember what Terry did with you, brothers, and that's what he said. Uh, after first act, my wife, Jim, said, uh, what was that all about? People should realize that we're leaving the first act. We can only understand it. And I found that I was afraid at that point for that impact on Royal Naturally. I felt that I'd be given all kinds of injections. And that it doesn't have to be because they have to understand it. And if they don't interested enough to try to understand it, then you're never going to get them anyhow. And that, that to create excitement and create neurosis and create melodrama and create farce simply because we have heard the exposition and don't find it very interesting anymore. Mm -hmm. It can be a total disaster. Completely correct. Have yeah. the courage totally to right let, on that. let it unwind. You have no choice but to do that. I know when I was working on that first act and planning things out, I was not trusting. And then I luckily got back to that thought just as I began rehearsals. Yeah. And I said, no, that's not going to work. Stop being the director. Stop not trusting. If you're going to try this material, if you're going to deal with this play, you've got to, you've got to go with it or else you're in trouble. Make it elegant, find the right look, the right set, the right color schemes, uh, stage it cleanly, point the jokes, do what you can to make it move and clean and crisp, yeah. but trust those words and trust the information because we have to hear the information or else we will not, exactly as Stephen said, we will not go on with it. Well, it's funny, I think that elegance that you speak of is very powerful in its way. It really speaks to an audience. Uh, partly because there isn't nearly as much of it in daily life as there, you know, as there might once have been. And, uh, and, you know, we kind of get assaulted by all the different uh, communication systems and everything else. And there's something very lulling and pleasing. I think we don't allow costumes to work as well as they could. And I know that I'm... I'm I love listening to the audience on each actress's entrance because there is a sound that acknowledges a costume. Mm -hmm. And each, obviously, each actress has a new costume per act because how could you not in, in this kind of play? Uh, but there is a sound. There is something that just signals the reaction. In the opening scene, Mom has, has a back to us, a mother, out on the terrace, and she turns around. There's bits of sound. Each time Constance makes her entrance, there is a progressive ooh as each more elegant costume unfolds in three acts. Yeah. You, you, you trust costume, yeah. and we don't tend to do that, or we'll overkill like Zeffirelli, and we will deal with opera with such a massive costume well, that... Well, a miniseries. Well, you can't... A miniseries, <laughs> right? I mean, you can't, you can't possibly deal with costume 
when you're seeing 40 or 50, or you're dealing with the, the act you've seen in the Bohem, and, and there are 75 or 120 people up on that stage in incredible uh, period costumes, you lose it. But this kind of a play allows a pause to be taken on every female entrance. And I was aware of that, and when we staged it, I made sure, without really spending too much time explaining to the actresses, that, that there had to be that little beat. We made sure that there was this little moment where you had to just take that little snap, which didn't say model, uh, approval, do you like this? Didn't quite say that, but nonetheless did that, so that you could take the beat and look at the entire figure, and the gentleman as well. Mm -hmm. See the figure, see it, and then move on without underlining it too much, but letting the costume carry its share of the play, which again is something in contemporary plays we, we tend to ignore. Actresses used to be quite clear about that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> very correct. It's something that's missing today. Because well, also, that's very also important. the settings for, for both plays, uh, I thought added a tremendous dimension to the play off of the printed page. I mean, I know when I read them, there was a certain sense of uh, what makes this specifically theatrical, even though I admired uh, you know, a number of the elements. I, I wasn't sure at all times how it would look on the stage and how you could get away from simply illustrating the text. Well, I changed the environment from the text. Yeah. It is a drawing room, and in the text you have your double doors up center and off the fireplace and various entrances to other rooms. Uh, since we deal with constants redecorating, I wanted to go very modern, which meant very highly deco. And I asked for a terrace. So the entire wall is a glass wall with terrace doors on two mm -hmm. levels, which are split level yeah. also. Now that, there's nothing in the text that suggests that. No. And, and yet, you're dealing with summer, and I had felt if we opened it up with that large expanse, we can let the lighting designer, again, contribute another element so that we can have these shafts of wonderful bright light to suggest summer and brightness since every scene is a summer afternoon. You can let the lighting do it and you can let fabric do it. And by having the two levels, you have now given uh, an environment of movement that also becomes interesting. So that you, I think, create, hopefully if you have some good designers, and I think we were all lucky in some life to get them, to help create that total environment. And only when that total environment is appealing, uh, then you, you can free your yeah. actors and the director and the words to then do their share. To, yeah. uh, because we've now made the lovely frame, the appropriate frame for a piece. Sometimes a frame can be too decorated, as I'm saying, Zeffirelli, where you can take a very simple uh, Medigliani and you can put it in a this huge Rococo frame and you'll absolutely kill it. It'll be totally wrong. You have to find the right frame. And in production, you can find that appropriate frame. I think these period pieces, you can, you can just deal with the curves and the gilding. And you can deal with all of that. And then let's look at the canvas and then we can you know, play with that canvas. Yeah. Um, you, were, you were talking about, uh, before about uh, reports, anthropological reports from, from ancient societies. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I, if I felt that there certainly was a distance between our society now and the societies depicted in both of the plays, but it was that, that element of visual pleasure in the design. There's just so much uh, a sense well, of visual pleasure. That's one it's really important for, as a matter of fact, and that's one of the things people went to the theater for. Was to see, just show one set of you never can tell. This is a pop filer, I wrote it for money, and that's why people wear nice clothes and eat. Mm -hmm. 
why we have Dynasty and Dallas and Falcon Crest. I have yet to see a saga about the poor. We, we, we don't have that. Exactly what the play <laughs> exactly. But, but today, what make what is the television uh, saga that we watch? It does exactly what Stephen has described. <laughs> exactly what Stephen has described as being the reason for the audience to be in that medium of theater in that period of time is exactly what television is doing today, which now could be an entirely different, sad uh, topic of discussion, as it has shifted as yeah. such. Steve, we have yeah. yeah. Okay, why don't we... Uh, we don't, we have to clear the room and say that. So, uh, we should have given you 15 minutes. I wanted to... Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.